it's become traditional in some circles to offer a land blessing when uh, at the beginning of an event. I don't know if some of you are in context where that happens, but it has happened even at um, openings of art exhibits at Harvard that I've been to, depending on the kind of art that it is, where there's an acknowledgement of the indigenous people that um, took care of this land before the colonization began, and that the Wampanoag people still live around here in Boston, up and down the Cape. Um, now they have casinos and corruption scandals and you know, post-industrial revolution troubles, but they're still here. And it's very um, connected to meditating with the elements, um, earth, wind, you know. Oh, earth, water, fire, and air. I, made, I think I made a mistake on my own title. Um, because of the nature-based or earth-based spirituality that indigenous people practiced. And I have not a lot of exposure to those teachings, a little bit of, you know, like a sweat lodge here and there and stuff. But I like to think that if we go back far enough in anybody's heritage, there is an earth-based spirituality. It's not um, only cultural appropriation to speak of it. And it might be a good time right around now in the history of humanity to think about those things more. So in the book 1491, it's said that rather than the thick and unbroken monumental snarl of trees imagined by Thoreau, the great eastern forest was an ecological kaleidoscope of garden plots, blackberry rambles, pine barrens, and spacious groves. The North American continent had some of the largest gardens and grazing herds on the planet at the time, and it's considered that um, indigenous people had not necessarily um, this sort of just hunter-gathering thing, that there was wildlife management and management of fires in California, for example, that um, had that tradition been allowed to continue, it might not be the way it is now. Um, trails and highways went all over the Americas and forms of social organization included um, much more empowerment for women, at least in the Iroquois, Haudenosaunee, and different kinds of philosophy with people, ways of life, and customs that um, has, didn't really get a chance, other than it infiltrated the US Constitution to some degree. But respecting and honoring an attitude that um, really considers human beings as part of nature is healing, can feel important, can feel like part of our practice. There are um, strong teachings in Buddhism related to this, and I'm going to kind of offer some of them to um, ways of making it an experiential practice for ourselves as we sit. I'm really trying to get this noise. So not as an idealized practice with necessarily sweat lodges, um, but to reintegrate, can, is the, the amplification is working and now there's less of this nasty noise, right? Yeah, that's better. So let's say in the, we're past the industrial revolution, we're in late stage capitalist death throes maybe or something like this. But <laughs> You know, nature became sort of an employee or something, like a background to the activities of human beings who were kind of building a world, it felt. Um, and even now, the way we may tend to return to nature, it's almost like something in a display case or something to observe, something that we don't feel necessarily incorporated into. The nature writer, Barry Lopez, says it's kind of like a, he says a marriage, but just think of any kind of friendship where one person turns their back on the other person without um, any explanation or any reciprocity anymore, that the human beings have somewhat separated ourselves from nature and our own kind of naturalness on some level. And this breach um, brings on a kind of misery, the misery of maybe missing our partner, um, the ache or the desire for a reunion and reconnection. 
Um, and even if that reunion and reconnection are not felt as a need, which they may or may not for some of us, it also feels as if, given the situation with what's going on with the climate and human activity, whether, you, whether we wish to do it or not, it's worth our consideration. And it's not too late to do it now. To develop a connection that's felt, that may be remembered as a form of healing for ourselves, as a form of healing collectively, that also offers kind of glimpses or kind of enduring basis of something that we feel could be even sacred or valuable for us in our lives. And the reason I called it gratitude is because I feel like um, through our human emotions of love and appreciation, we can, it's one of the ways that we can find our way into what could be a real relationship with the world. It might feel strange um, to feel grateful for fire. But there's ways of expanding that um, definition, as you'll see as we go. Also, when we're grateful, we know in a way we're not, it's not us at the center. We've opened ourselves to something that we've received that supports us and that um, helps us. There's so much written about gratitude practice and how it sort of uplifts our lives. And if we think about it, our lives might actually depend, or the lives of our children or the lives of our grandchildren might depend on some version of understanding all that we receive from nature rather than all that we can take and all that we can squeeze from it. The practice of relating to nature and our and our nature as connected and not separate and with some greater sense of care and reverence could also um, be healing for ourselves personally, um, for some of the trauma that we've caused it as human beings, even living in networks that are beyond our control, having some sense of connection or compassion or even apology toward um, what's been going on. I've joined this group called the Extinction Rebellion, which XR, which is, um, I haven't gone to any demonstrations. I'm not in the get arrested group. I'm in the meditation group, <laughs> that, which is also thinking of ways for people to actually be honest and hold uh, what it feels like to be living at this time. And one of the things that's um, crucial in the attitudes in that group, which is really well designed, it's quite impressive. and. Um, I know Janai Postelnik spoke about it about six months ago here and spoke very beautifully about it, but one of the things I like about the meditative branch of Extinction Rebellion is the emphasis that we can't, uh, there, we shouldn't really blame ourselves. It's not about really um, blaming what's going on. It's not about cultivating anger, but it's also about not uh, stopping and about being in relationship with what happens and trying to help. So for me as a kid, my father used to take us, my father was a geologist and had grown up in Canada with a lot of nature. So he would, um, he was famous for almost going off the road on the highway and looking at road cuts and saying, you know, the Jurassic sandstones. You know. <laughs> my mother would be like, Chuck, Chuck. Or, or birds on the wire, you know, look at that bird. You see the little hook it has? It takes a, kills a mouse and it goes and hangs it on a barbed wire somewhere to rot and then it eats it when it's a little bit rotten and stuff. The butcher bird and stuff, which I wasn't interested in that much all the time, but <laughs> <laughs> I ended up taking a geology course at school and college and um, the ancientness of the earth and how much it has changed. And, you know, looking at the Grand Canyon, if uh, some of us have been there to learn that it used to be like a shallow coral ocean and then it was a thing like a Sahara and then there were just volcanoes and then there's millions of years that nobody even knows what was happening because it eroded and this sense of the grandeur of nature which came through a kind of intellectual education and it, about reality, what, you know, what is actually real, it opened my mind in ways that felt not just intellectual and that's um, part of what science can do. I think science can be a gateway to awesomeness, um, not just 
the rationality, but um, the reality and what it feels like to accommodate that. So earth, water, fire, and air, let's say, for the scientific mind, for when I first started to practice with the elements like this, I had to also say, let's talk about it being solids, liquids, gases, and energy, because air, the air element means movement, but um, so that I could fit it into what my own view was and not think that the way Buddhist practice recommends practicing with earth, water, fire, and air is just some kind of old school thing that should have been thrown out the window around the time people stopped trying to turn lead into gold or something, you know, that it's, well, it was an archaic sense, but it could be considered as a way of thinking about the states of matter. And just to start with an overview about, you know, our bodies, like you study geology, but um, I studied geology, but you could also say that looking at your body, like the normal way that you think about your body is not as a bag of water, right, usually? <laughs> we more spend a huge amount of time as a human being in the sort of socially constructed body more, right? Or maybe things about our health, right? Stuff about how healthy it is or is it hurting or fat or let's say the tremendous oppression of body shape, um, appearance-based comparing mind. Here, there's going to be, it looks like a great retreat coming up on letting go of the comparing mind. Um, in January. But our bodies are 70% water um, and 10 to the 27th power of atoms in there. So let's say most of the atoms are oxygen and hydrogen. 60 chemical elements, even some titanium if you don't have an artificial joint. Um. <laughs> and when Bhikkhu Bodhi teaches meditating on the four great elements of the body in our bodies. He imagines, he asks everyone to imagine back as far as the Big Bang, when at least scientific consensus has it, most of the ma all of the matter in the universe and all of the energy appeared. So that all of the elements and the, in these atoms in our bodies um, grew from that. Everything that lives on the earth all the intensity of fretting when you can't find your phone <laughs> is not outside of the realm of what ensued from the Big Bang. And I've done a lot of practice about this and given a lot of talks about this and entering in from contemplating these facts or scientific consensuses or scientific descriptions of the world does something for me. I don't know if it bores other people here to think that you're a bunch of atoms might not be like the source of great emotion, I don't know. <laughs> or even a shift in the sense of where your identity is grounded, which is really where the elemental meditations are meant to go. But there's, a, um, there's some very wonderful books on this subject of thinking of our existence kind of from a different level. So I forget what his first name is, Fleischmann. He, he's a um, Goenka meditator, and he wrote a book called Wonder, saying the holy resonances echoing within our DNA can be heard by anyone who listens to inner feelings that we all contain about the wonder of existence. Life reflects magnitudes and layers of laws that defy our capacities to understand them. How could the wild and vast forces of the cosmos that speed galaxies billions and trillions of miles apart, the forces that careen in thermonuclear solar explosions also guide with pinpoint precision the atoms of my cells. And we're not really involved in all of that, you know, the, the atoms of our cells or the replacement of our stomach lining 17 times a day or all that kind of stuff. Fleischmann continues by saying, wonder is the habit of acknowledgement. There's something about being in awe a little bit or um, a kind of deference that arises, which, again, takes some of the suffering of, like what Buddhists call this, you know, incredible extra clinging to self um, out of it. 
This vision exceeds any coarse familiar name or any fantasy relation. So I was just at a teacher council gathering at Spirit Rock, and there was the Spirit Rock Meditation Center, which is in California, which is where I'm leading that teacher training. Hence, I have a temporary position on this teacher council there. And after the land blessing offered at the teacher council meeting, the person who was leading it said, invited us to imagine ourselves as earth, walking on the earth. And there's something slightly metaphorical about that to think of our bodies as earth, but it's also in the Christian tradition, like the sort of texture of clay. But if you think of all the atoms and minerals and stuff in our bones and everything, it's not really so far or big of a stretch to think of the, the earth as part of the way that our body is. Thich Nhat Hanh writes, and he has a beautiful book called Love Letter to the Earth, where he talks about the earth, you know, really in intimate terms as a as a mother, as a as a parent, and of his, himself and of us as really belonging to her or it, you know, thinking of it as alive, which actually it is, in many ways, alive. To make some kind of connection with nature outside ourselves can also be quite profound and. Here I have my prop that I thought might excite you if you're starting to get bored. You know, RuPaul, have you, you, know, <laughs> you see this drag artist? And in this interview in Vanity Fair, I learned that RuPaul is actually quite a kind of guru-like philosopher. Um, he says that his main indulgence is getting up early to spend time with himself. He gets up at 6.30 and he goes for a hike in nature and meditates because it's very difficult in these times and being the kind of person and style that he is, is that maintaining being conscious takes a lot of effort to deal consciously with what's going on, with what's going on in the world and what's going on in families and what's going on everywhere and all of those realities. And then he says, that is so boring um, then speaking about his art, he says, true drag has to do with seeing that this world is an illusion and everything that you say you are and everything it says on your driver's license is all an illusion. Also has something to do with earth meditations. In a more homey, like traditionally Buddhist style way, Thich Nhat Hanh recommends lying on the ground and saying, Mother Earth, I'm in you. I'm dying and being born every minute. You are always there. And this you can do on the floor in your room. It can be, you don't have to go and lie outside, especially not this time of year. <laughs> so this going out in nature and hiking and or being in it with a tree or just taking a minute and looking at a bush or looking at the potted plant and really making a connection can be a real resource for us in these times these times when maintaining being conscious is actually kind of demanding if you want to open to what's going on. I think for many of us, it, I certainly hear from a lot of people in the Buddhist world who see me in the role of a teacher and I try to respond in the role of a teacher, like what do we do about how to live now? About how it feels? and How much distress is bombarding us every minute um, or every day? Should I read the paper anymore? Should I stop reading the paper? Should I stop listening to the radio? Um, what about the other day when the cable, you know, I was out of internet because the cable modem was broken and the repair person was supposed to come. We had to wait five days and then it turns out they didn't come because it wasn't put on the schedule. <laughs> so six days without internet. Oh my God. Um, what a horrible state of mind I was in for about 10 minutes when the person said that, that no the repair person wasn't coming. After we stayed home, you know, they have to stay home half the day because they might come between 12 and 5. And, you know, then we call and say, like, could you please pinpoint a little more for us? What time? What do you mean? There's no appointment. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm embarrassed by the way I behaved on the phone to that person, I <laughs> have to say. <laughs> Thank you.
So Thich Nhat Hanh says um, also further, because we have not always done so well by the earth or with the earth or in our life, I make a deep vow today with gratitude and love in my heart to cherish and protect the beauty of the earth, to embody your wondrous consciousness in my life. I vow to follow in the footsteps of those who've gone before me, to live with awareness and compassion, and be worthy of calling myself your child. So what's helpful in the Buddhist practice for me is that we are invited to really um, feel into practices like this experientially. Like what I've just done is to sort of try to create a sense of atmosphere, what it would, something about the sacredness of it, or maybe how making a type of emotional connection with something will make will help us to care about it more. Just like I was reading a um, letter to the editor recently by a man who was reporting a bedtime story that his father had read to him of like an old book for like little kids about a wounded grizzly bear, you know, that his mother had been shot and he crawls into this little hole and his paw is hurting and he's not going to get any milk from his mother anymore. And he said, you know, after that my father and I would both be crying and there's like no way I could hunt anymore. I couldn't kill a bear after that, after having heard that story. Like to think of the earth maybe or nature as in some way something that we might have an intimacy with or an emotion toward is maybe personifying it slightly could help um, be beneficial. But to find elements also in our experience um, is what the practice in Buddhism that's been really in sort of the Buddhist tradition that's been very helpful for me is like. So to turn our attention now to like just to hold the sense of conscious experience in your mind, like to know yourself as a consciously experiencing being. And just consider like the the symphony or the cacophony that goes on in there, like the way our experience is unfolding all the time, how sometimes it's really beautiful and harmonious and other times it's really ugly, right, inside? I don't know. Was it just me? I don't think so. <laughs> very ugly aspects of life or our life, very, you know, disgraceful maybe even, or things like that. As we've been discussing, to just develop a sense of care and tenderness internally just right now for yourself in all of this and in the sense of cacophony um, sometimes that we're drastically out of tune sometimes. Um, I was really mean to that person on the cable phone appointment thing. I was embarrassed afterwards. I said I was sorry, and I knew it wasn't really their fault, but I was bad. I was like that. Um, So to just think about also that as perhaps a symphony-like elements, and also to, within the sense of intention, to create a little bit more space or care or connection, um, to know that we can tune it up more. That's one of the axioms of Buddhist practice, like we're interested in life and there's a chance maybe to participate in this incredible DNA symphony work of art that we are in a way that's more helpful and more compassionate and more productive, let's say. Like Thelonious Monk uh, said, you can see, he could see all the piano keys, but you play, just play the ones you mean. Which I love that. <laughs> So, not just what we perceive, but how we perceive it and what we put our minds to. So, in the mindfulness practice, as it's normally taught, right, there we pay attention to our physical body and to the sensations of our bodies um, in real time, like here and now, right? In the same instructions where that is given, the way the attention to the body is done sometimes includes noticing its anatomical nature, like noticing that you have a stomach and a skin and mucous membranes and kidneys and stuff like that, and kind of placing your attention there and understanding that as a way of really getting more about what it's like to be a human or what it is to be a human. 
that's a segment that's often called the 32 parts of the body meditation. And it's not really often taught, or it's taught as a, sometimes as something that feels a little bit bizarre or, you know, specialized. But it's actually quite interesting to do that. And then the second part that is also taught at this, when at the basic level of paying attention to the body is noticing what are called the four elements. So this is the, you know, meditative part of the talk. So while I'm describing this, maybe you would follow along almost as if it were a guided meditation. I thought about giving this talk as mostly a guided meditation, but then I thought, well, there's this whole meditation before. It would probably be not seem of such great interest if it was a second meditation. So I'm trying to be more entertaining and a little bit more intellectual fodder. But for now, to say, um, and if you'd like to stand up and you're tired of sitting down, you can do it by standing, but just bring your attention to feel um, with your eyes open or closed what, what tells you that you have a body or that you are embodied and present here. I'll just say a few things, qualities. There could be like a sense of coolness or warmth somewhere in your experience now. It's probably a, some sensation or what we often will call feelings of the body, things the body's feeling. Many times we're not necessarily attuned to the sensation or that's ongoing, you know, it's usually when it calls our attention by being more extreme. But there's a lot of sensations, and pulsations, vibrations. There might be something that's pleasurable, there might be something unpleasant, even pain for some of us, discomfort. Places where it's tense or loose, maybe a sense of balance somewhere, flow of movement, flow of air and breath, tightness. And different kinds of textures in the sensations. So it actually takes our attention to the texture of sensations to practice this four element meditation, the four physical elements. There are two other ones I'll talk about later, but toward the end of this, but let's say there's a feeling of places where it could be, feel firm, like at the bottom of your feet, or even a sense of your bones that you might have. And it's okay if you have a picture of your bones, like something that's hard, like your skull or your teeth. This is what's called the earth element, um, something that supports weight or can take pressure. It can be felt as hard or soft, but any quality of relative solidity that you feel is the experience of what's called the earth. We might also reflect about, it's quite easy to think of our bones as mineral-like, like a sort of like rocks. And that this firmness and this earthness or minerality isn't separate from the earth outside us is all the mineralness and the relative firmness and all of that also exists in the floor in stones in what's holding up this house that we're in and the minerals in our bodies also came from you know broccoli and lentils and the earth, too, like they wouldn't be inside us if they weren't outside us. And when we die, our body also goes back to dust, as it's beautifully said in the Bible and Christian tradition. So now to the sense of water. Just feel in for yourself to any sense of wateriness about your body, any knowledge of the water held inside the skin. If you're standing or sitting and it's available to you, you could invite yourself to just sway back and forth a little bit and you can almost feel it like there's 
water sloshing back and forth side to side in your torso. I remember doing this in a Qigong class. You might be able to feel wetness in, in your mouth or the corners of your eyes or have a knowledge of liquid inside the body like in the bladder. The water in the body also comes in from the outside and leaves it in various ways, sometimes just evaporating through the skin. It's not separate from all the waters of our earth either. And experientially, other than having images and conceptual knowledges, the sense of flows of en- flow of energy and the sense of cohesion or what makes the the earth of our body into the mud kind of texture that we are, um, that's considered to be the experience of water. can also sort of feel lack of water, like dryness on our lips maybe, or chapped skin. And the way that energy flows is watery too. So now to the sense of, we'll move to fire, which is feeling of warmth or feeling of coolness, temperature, our ability to be aware of that. It's also um, the energy and vitality that we could think of as the image of fire, but a sense of energy and vitality in our body, which, you know, it's actually not that primitive to call it fire since we're digesting and combining carbon and oxygen all the time. Along the skin is one of the best places to feel what's called the fire element and it may be one of the areas where our body experiences pleasant and unpleasant quite radically like how many people have complained about the winter. I remember I was on a phone call the other day with someone tech help or something in Buffalo. She was like, I love the cold. I'm like, wow, you are crazy. (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) But it's all like a changing process, right? Like sometimes heat can be highly unpleasant. Too much heat or too much cold. So it's interactive between climate, between our body, between our mind. So we'll move now to the air, experiential practice. There's certainly breathing itself and how air comes in to the body and is actually a gas that's distributed into every cell by the blood. Just feel your body taking in air and letting it back out again, not separate from the air around and also not separate from the way that plants breathe out different gases that we reciprocate with. In this experiential terminology or metaphor, because of the way the breath works, um, what's called the air element is anything that has movement or pressure, things that stir the body or shape the body, piercing sensations and movements different from the supportive solidity of earth, um, the sense of movement and tingling that you might feel. It's the air element because it's the way air moves trees, the way air moves leaves. Sometimes it feels like the body is like a lot of little leaves rustling in, in this movement that seems to not come from anywhere. The, the winds of the body. So just quickly, because the other two elements are fun to think about, there's the element of space, which we can feel all around our body, outside the body, a kind of sense of absence of pressure. You might be aware of spaces inside your body, like the mouth cavity or the ears. 
space and openness is a nice thing to op- use to connect our mind to sometimes, like when our mind gets quite congested and stuff, opening up and just feeling into the spaciousness is good. And the last element, the space is considered to be more of a mental element, and consciousness is also a mental element. So just sense into how your body and mind are feeling and knowing and responding to one another, lived experience of, of being aware. And as you're aware, the sense of change Sometimes we tend to be more aware of one area or another and this, but the sense of change is also something that is happening outside and inside. We don't necessarily have control over that. Relaxing a little bit and allowing freedom for these sensations and these elements to interact might have space to feel yourself as part of nature. Your awareness is natural. So the sense of, even to say connection sometimes is almost to assume separation, so not being separate from any of this as an experience. So that part, the guided meditation is done and if you'd like to sit down anytime if you'd like to stay standing up or if you'd like to get up and stand for the rest of the talk that's fine too if any kind of <laughs> listening to discomfort in the body and adapting to it is fine now the buddha the f- founder of our practice for me i get a charge out of this because i like him the buddha and i like thinking that we have a tradition that comes from that and i believe that there's wisdom in that he explicitly suggested to his only child, his son, to practice meditation on the elements and to say that um, if you develop a mind that's like the earth, you'll feel very steady and stable. If you develop a mind that's like water, you'll be able to flow and things like this. You know. Um, but I found personally what happens for myself when I meditate on the elements is that my mind, by associating with the elements, naturally becomes that way a little bit more. So I've been emphasizing the earth element because it's quite easy to feel like when I'm walking to the kitchen and stuff in the morning like before reading the paper and stuff like that I've come to really appreciate the sense of the the floor and my foot and seeing the the quality of earth in the floor seeing actually due to the encouragement that this type of practice has to recognize the wood of the floor as something from the earth and then read the paper you see like on top of that, so it's kind of like, and then go back to it afterwards, like see the water coming out of the sink, feel grateful for water, feel grateful for running water, see the clarity of the water, and imagine that it's not polluted, um, etc. These metaphors of earth, water, fire, and air are also used in loving-kindness p- practice. I'm about to teach with two members of the teacher training, a course at Barry Center for Buddhist Studies about um, two of the suttas, and one of them is the one, I don't know if some of you have been familiar with this really sort of horrifying example that's used sometimes at loving-kindness retreats, that even if you're being sawn in half, you shouldn't give rise to a thought of revenge, you know, <laughs> like then you're not practicing the teaching, which is part of what, you know, I think the Buddha was sometimes trying to really provoke you into thinking about things by creating these incredibly intense things. Plus, he was trained as a warrior. He lived in a war war culture, so may have been partially influenced by that. But the main part of those instructions later, afterwards, is how to develop that type of mind, how to develop the capacity to not get so pissed off so quickly just because the cable person isn't coming, (laughs) you know? Like, not to, like, start spewing out a huge amount of negativity over trivial stuff, for example, or not just reacting if someone criticizes someone else, which is part of what this whole sutta was embedded in, but to start to train yourself this way by using the elements as a support. So he talks about like um, having loving kindness that's really stable like the earth, and imagine 
Like if your loving kindness is deep enough, it would be like someone trying to dig a hole in the earth that's so deep that it gets rid of all the earth, but actually the earth cannot be dug away, even so your mindfulness should be so deep. But this kind of training about deepening our capacity to respond in a nonviolent way is also what a lot of social justice warriors do. Like if you read Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail, it's like that. We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. Do to us what you will and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with the good. Throw us in jail and we shall love you. On and on he goes. And But that was a training, as you know, if you've studied history. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we shall wear you down <laughs> by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, and not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process and your, our victory will be a double one. So a tall order, but there's some possibility there. I actually met the nuns who said, you know, that is another example that's often given is these nun, Tibetan nuns who were tortured and said the main thing they were afraid of was losing their compassion for their torturers because it was such an essential component of their dignity, I think, too. Their sense of having more space to not become the object of what's going on. So talking about the elements and the depth of, you know, what we can understand when we might consider them as a basis for our lives and our practice. We'll turn a little bit to the to the universality of what elemental practice does. You know, one of the ways of its being healing and supporting is that the fate of all people and all living things are connected if you start to really practice with what the elementalness of life is all about. That when we think about the climate or we think about nature, we think about, you know, this universality of life, there's no one that should be left behind. Like, as we allow ourselves to be part of the nature that we're contemplating, as we loosen those boundaries to understand a different level of truth, let's say our individuality and our uniqueness is one side of the truth, and the universality and the collective and the community is another side. This nature writer, Barry Lopez, wrote about having been raped as a child by the same man for four years when he was younger and his, you know, all the work that he did, this is in an article at Harper's Magazine in 2013, and, you know, trying to understand why his parents let it go on and all this friend of the family kind of stuff and his father didn't want to take the guy to court and stuff and he later on became a nature writer in part for his own healing and he said there was a time when he went very far in Tierra del Fuego or somewhere he was you know, on a, on a difficult long journey and um, out there, you know, and he found this little chapel at the end of the earth where there weren't people in the chapel at the time, but there were these little wishes, you know, those things in Catholic churches where the people will put up a leg or a heart or something like their sort of desperate need for someone to heal my leg or my heart or my sister or something like that. And he said, well, is, if you feel like you can do something to help with that, then you should. Don't stop. All you need is the conviction that you're capable of participating and offering some kind of help through this participation. In part because no one else is coming to do it and save us. Like there's not one person coming to save us. Right now we're under the, you know, domination of someone who needs supervision and the highest office in the land, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Baby who lacks supervision, in fact. So a little bit about how the elements can go out of balance in ourself and in others is actually by not acknowledging our impact or the connection like this. Literally, on a grander scale, the greed of human beings and the service of self and the service of the individual is creating like too much heat. The mind and body and elements are actually quite interactive. 
when things are on fire in our minds, that's, you could start saying that, where we feel broken inside, could be like earth. People who are cold-hearted or warm or hot-tempered. And generally I'd say like, for myself, the element practice is a really fun thing to play with. Like it's quite inviting in a way to both contemplate the material elements inside and outside the body, but also the ways that, let's say, our cognition and our emotions are also very embodied and also can feel quite elemental. Like you could just think about it like airy-fairy, right? <laughs> like need to be more grounded, right? Um, things that burn. My grandmother used to say, memories that bless and burn. <laughs> this in some, you know, acupuncture and traditional medicine systems is really quite, you know, understood or taught or used as a healing system that, you know, people who have like too much earth and it's not enough water or something, that's the stubborn people, like their earth is baked a little bit and it doesn't absorb any water or doesn't listen, you know, or, you know, too much water in the wood and you're kind of like, you know, you can become... Um, too stiff, and it may be that some of these metaphors of hard and soft, hot and cold, are some of the ways that our body actually thinks, you know, and, and some of the terms that we live on. So, for example, here's a quote from a Dharma book from, by Sayada Utejaniya called, um, I think, Natural Awareness, or When Awareness Becomes Natural, yeah. As long as there's no understanding, whenever we have a wrong thought, it will burn the mind and the heart, and we will suffer. You will notice that some thoughts cause an immediate explosion, and you will feel hot and angry, embarrassed and upset. If we can bring a little awareness and wisdom, we can see that behind every thought is an underlying nature, maybe an intention or a belief. We can look at how thoughts create feelings, and feelings create more thoughts. Mindfulness is not about stopping this process, it's about understanding its nature. So these metaphors of heat and explosions and stuff like that are really actually quite elemental and quite um, related to things that you can observe outside. And, you know, that happens if you try to have an image of somebody angry or something like that. Sometimes there's an erupting volcano with lava spraying everywhere and stuff like that. So this sense of access to wisdom and insight through understanding the elements can be really quite liberating and freeing, and when you feel that freedom of letting go of this self-centered in interpretation that's so natural, you will feel it and know it. Like, you might even hear, I have a little nodule on my vocal cords from talking too much, <laughs> being a Dharma teacher and talking to people in rooms like this, and it's composed of dryness and a callus uh, from overuse and from improper breathing and not relaxing, so tightness and dryness created this little lump there, and I can either think that I sound horrible, you know, like a crow, or I can also imagine there's this nodule there that's created by dryness, which is different. And the other day I was at a concert and I heard this Korean pansori singer who's like a Korean opera singer. She had the same thing. And I thought, I can picture the little hard place on her vocal cord that she also has, you know. It's like a compassionate connection, but um, seeing that is in that way is so much different from thinking like, I sound bad, right? So when we feel this kind of tension in our bodies, like the hardening or the heat or things in our mind, you might imagine anger also as some kind of fire, or some kind of hardness or harshness in texture, or greediness, like the way it feels kind of sticky or gluey or something, or wet. We're stuck. And feeling these things kind of on the energetic level can also reduce the sense of selfing. Feeling them as embodied experiences, it's something that's taught quite a lot. So this same Barry Lopez, uh, who I've been quoting, says he now has a long-term cancer diagnosis, and he says he notices there's no elasticity in his skin anymore. His elements are going out of balance. He's always either cold or hot. His sense of balance is diminished. He says he still likes having his face in the wind, and everything that he needs is here. He says everything you need to know is right there in your room. 
You've got to reconsider the organization of the physical world and your place in it in order to find the orientation you need if you're not to be done in by the forces all around you. The sunshine I crave is actually available. So I'm going to close with a prayer from the Tibetan tradition um, for um, people dying. This is the Tibetan Book of the Dead for reading aloud in the bardo, and it's, it's kind of about the surrender when the elements um, start to take over, I guess. Remain awake, O nobly born. Merge with the space of all-encompassing wisdom at the center of your being. Merge, merge, merge. That's space. Now in the east, the blue water element will sparkle. The diamond one and his consort shine from the realm of utter joy. Unshakable mirror-like wisdom, still water, lake with no ripples, reflects the world as it is. Intelligence pierces your heart like an icicle. Don't be angry, noble one, water will purify. Blue-white of winter, clarity of sunrise, diamond mind. So remain alert, O nobly born. These clear rays are your own diamond rays. Recognize them and merge, merge, and merge. Yellow. And now from the south, the earth element shines yellow like gold. From the realm of the great and the glorious come the splendid king and his court all bejeweled. The abundance of harvest, generosity and wealth. Kingly wisdom of equanimity, the earth and the sun. So nobly born, rest in these golden rays, merge and merge and merge. Now from the west, the fire element glows everywhere red, the sunset. From the realm of ecstasy glows the compassionate one on his and her throne. O nobly born, this is the warmth of your own heart, embrace it. This is springtime and blossoms, fawns dancing in a field, beauty touching your heart and wisdom. So nobly born, rest and rest in the rosy warm light of fire and compassion. Merge and merge and merge. Now from the green north arises an air element, the wind stirring your heart. From the the realm of accomplishing all actions comes the great doer on the back of a powerful bird. The wings of the bird raise the wind, stirring the leaves, swaying the birches, rippling the green grasses of summer, filling your ears with sound. Be one with this activity. Join the shining wind itself. This is the way of your own mind. Be the wind. Be the wind. It's not just death, but also life. Mm. 